Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today is going to be one of those episodes that is going to be mind-blowing because our guest has made it, I mean, the full cycle multiple times, and I think that you're all going to find it quite inspiring. So I guess that without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jeff Seibert. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Alejandro. It's great to be here. So born in Maryland, in Baltimore. So how was life growing up there? Yes, I, I would say it was very normal. Went to school, not a lot going on. Uh, one of the key things is not a lot of technology. I became obsessed with computers, and that was very not cool in high school. And ended up teaching myself to code when I was 13 and just was one of the very few people in school who knew anything about computers, let alone wanted to program them. And so it was a little bit lonely, but it was very fun diving into all of that. So then tell us, because you eventually ended up in Stanford. So what was that process like? I mean, why didn't you stay there in, in Maryland? What got you all the way to Stanford? Yes, great question. So I knew nothing about colleges. I wasn't really focused on the college process until I found a list on the internet of startup founders uh, and where they went to college. And this was, I think, in 2000, right around the dot-com uh, boom. And the list was like half or more Stanford. And so without thinking, without knowing anything about the school, I told my parents, I want to go to Stanford. And my mom's immediate reaction was, one, that's way too far away. And two, you'll never get in. And so that was sort of the challenge I faced all through high school. Um, and finally, my junior year convinced my parents to at least let us visit so we could go see it. And so we flew out to the Bay Area, did the tour on Stanford's campus. Of course, it's 75 degrees. It's crystal clear. And my parents are like, oh, I guess this would be okay if you got in. Um, and so then that was the whole battle of uh, applying. But I was fortunate enough to get in and came out here and it changed everything. Just obviously immersed me in technology, introduced me to the concept of what a startup was versus just starting a company, a business. And so it was really transformative. I mean. When people go there for the first time, it's pretty mind-blowing to them what they experience, you know, the, the startup mentality, the, the try things and move fast and break things. I mean, how was it for you when finally, I mean, was it as good as the stuff that you were reading online and those lists that you found or, or how was that for you? 
it was fascinating just how much of the mindset pervades everything. And so I showed up at Stanford in 2004 and people were just talking on campus of who's going to be the next Google. That was that was the sole focus. And it was because Google had, of course, come out of the school, IPO not that long ago, been scaling massively. And it was, oh, who is going to be next? And I'd never been introduced to that mindset before. I had always loved coding just for software, just to like build things. I never had thought about a high growth company. And so it really was fascinating, like brainstorming startup ideas, talking about things, talking about the industry, having these founders and CEOs come speak. The, the school and the industry were just sort of tied at the hip. So then for you, obviously, I mean, you, you took this opportunity as well to do some internships. So you did one with Apple and then another one with a startup. So that got you know, your feet wet in, into the startup kind of like environment. So what did you learn from working with those two companies? Because obviously this was the segue for you to build your first business while still in, in college, which is crazy. But I guess, you know, like what, what was that for you like? Yeah, it was really eye-opening because growing up, of course, in Baltimore, 3,000 miles away, Apple was my dream job. Like my, my life goal was to work at Apple. And I was so excited when I was able to land an internship there and show up. And you realize it's a big company. It's a very traditional company. And it's, of course, a very secretive company. And so you show up as an intern, you get assigned to a team. I had an office as an intern at the time. And Apple had these policies of if you're working on something confidential, you had to keep your office door closed. Well, everything at Apple is confidential. And so you had to keep your door closed. And so it was a, it was a really fascinating world to be in as an intern. You don't get to know many people. I wasn't allowed to know what the other interns were working on. And so we could hang out after work, but we couldn't talk about work. And that was one of the reasons why I decided after that I probably wouldn't return, even though it had been my life dream. I wouldn't go back full time just because I wanted a more collaborative, more sort of customer driven, immersive experience. And so the next summer I interned at a startup uh, right off campus, complete opposite, tiny company, everyone in the same room, everyone rushing, working crazy hours, trying to get the product out the door. Uh, the company was scaling incredibly fast. They were onboarding millions of users the summer I was there. Um, and so that was that sort of hooked me on the pace and lifestyle of what the startup world meant. And that actually led you to do your own thing. So, so this was actually in your senior year in college. I mean, that's quite crazy. So what was that process of coming up with an idea and, and for you to tell yourself, you know what, maybe it's my, my chance right now to take a shot at this? Yeah, it was interesting. I put a group of friends together, not with the goal of starting a company, but to train us on how to evaluate startup ideas. And so we would meet for two hours every week at night, and we would just brainstorm startup ideas and write them all down. And then we would come back the next week and sort of evaluate them, having thought about them more. And we did this for months on end. And it was fascinating because in retrospect, we talked about a lot of really interesting ideas. This was in now 2007. We talked about the concept of just continuous backups of all your files and how it would just sync your computer to what the cloud wasn't a term yet, but to servers. And that was effectively Dropbox. We didn't have the skills or team to go build it, but we were thinking about these types of ideas. We ultimately, a few months in, got frustrated that we couldn't uh, hit on what we thought was like the killer idea. And so we ended up stepping back and deciding, let's just build an idea sharing website. And so for one of our computer science classes, actually for my senior project, 
we built an idea sharing site where you could type in ideas. It was collaborative. Other people could comment on them. And then we did some really early machine learning in the form of natural language processing to automatically cluster these ideas and pull out similarities between the ideas. And much to our surprise, we ended up winning the class competition for this CS senior project. And that just sort of snowballed from there. We kept working on it uh, over the summer, and it turned into this company in Creo, uh, which was all about sort of creativity and feedback. And so we actually built a document collaboration tool that allowed people to upload either a PDF or a Word doc or a Photoshop file or text or anything and comment on it and mark it up live in the browser. And today, this sounds obvious. There's so many tools that did that. Back in 2008, that was actually quite technically difficult. And so we had to actually build a lot of uh, conversion technology to display files in Flash in the browser, all of this real-time commenting support. And we ended up raising money uh, for that and banking and company around it. I mean, pretty impressive uh, still in, the, in college. And you get a term sheet from, from Team Draper. Not bad. Yes. So it was sort of a crazy story. Uh, we had met an associate at DFJ through one of our college classes. And so as we were working on this, we we're like, oh, let's just ping this person. And this was Ravi Balani. Um, and so we pinged Ravi, went in to meet him at DFJ and just sort of showed him what we built. We weren't raising money. We didn't have a deck. We didn't have anything. The, the goal was really just to get his feedback and have him tell us, like, is this interesting? Should we keep doing it? Or should we actually give up and get real jobs? And so we're in this meeting with Ravi. I would say it probably wasn't going that well. He was sort of interested. Um, but at the end of the meeting, he paused and he was like, you know what? Let me just see who else is around. And we're like, OK, great. He comes back with Tim Draper, of course, one of the founders of the firm. And Tim walks in and goes, OK, you have two minutes. What are you building? And so we show him the thing and he's like, okay, uh, how much are you raising? And we weren't raising, but we made a number up on the spot. We were like 500K. And he was like, okay, I can do that and walked out. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and so we were sort of speechless and Ravi was speechless. And Ravi was like, um, okay, I guess I'll put a term sheet together. <laughs> wow. And so we ended up after that uh, talking to a bunch of other firms very quickly just to evaluate if there was other interest in the deal. Uh, but it was hard to match Tim's excitement for what we were building. And so we ended up signing the term sheet for a half million dollar seed round with DFJ. So then what ended up, uh, you know, as we're speaking with fundraising, because obviously the, the events that ended up unfolding around fundraising really triggered what ended up being the acquisition by Box. Uh, but in this case, you guys pitched quite a number of of firms, and that led you to really make the decision that it was time to find a, a home for the company. Yeah. So fast forward a year, we had built the product, launched the product. We had about 20,000 customers on it. So it had some traction, not a ton, but not none. Um, and so this was now mid-09, late 09. And in the fall of 2009, if you remember, Sequoia released this uh, deck called RIP Good Times and immediately changed the fundraising climate. Um, thanks to the housing crisis. And we were running out of money. We had to raise an A round. We ended up pitching 36 firms up and down Sand Hill Road, all around the Bay Area. And every single one said no. And this was just a crazy, exhausting process and also terrifying process because this was our first company. We had six employees. We didn't want them to just like be unemployed. We didn't know what to do. 
And so we stepped back and started thinking about how can we save the business? How can we become profitable? And we realized, okay, we had all, what was really valuable wasn't our product as much, but the technology, our ability to display files in a web browser was very generic technology that was very rare. There was only one or two other companies that had it. And so we started uh, meeting with potential uh, partners, other companies that were in the documents business. And one of them was Box. And Box got extremely interested in the technology and integrating it into Box. And we were able to make an acquisition happen. And so they rescued us literally with, I think, 30 days of cash remaining. Um, and our team joined Box and it ended up being a fantastic experience. It was the first deal Aaron Levy had ever done. Box was only 40 people at the time. And uh, we came in and our Encreo Tech actually powered document display on Box for five years. That's amazing. And obviously, in, in your case, you stayed there for a couple of years, uh, went to Boston, then eventually ended up moving back. And, then, <laughs> and that actually was what, what created what has been your biggest uh, exit to, to, to today. No? But uh, we'll talk about your recent baby, your latest uh, company, which is very exciting, Digits. But before we do that, why don't we now talk about Crashlytics and we talk about that time where you came up with a concept, you finally decide that it's time to leave Box and you bring Crashlytics to life. What was that process like? Yes. So at Box, they actually sent me out east to Boston to start their R&D group. And we were building sync technology because it's funny how these things connect. In the interim, Dropbox came out and Dropbox was crushing Box with sync. Um, it was such an easy, natural product, and Box didn't have that. And so I started leading the team that was building the sync tech at Box. And for anyone who has worked on sync algorithms, they are immensely complex and tend to be quite buggy. Our beta version crashed a lot. And I started spending more and more of my time trying to figure out why it was crashing than actually building the product. And so this gave me an idea. And one weekend, I started fiddling around with actually automating our crash detection. The concept was like, could we just detect that our sync thing had crashed and upload the crash report so that we could do something about it? And so I built this prototype. It was working. I was sort of intrigued. Um, but I realized it wasn't specific to Box, right? This could work with any app. And so I uh, actually chatted with the VP of engineering and told him what I had built and asked, hey, if I did this on nights and weekends, could I just do this outside of Box and just like keep going on it? And to their credit, they were fantastic. They were super supportive. They were like, hey, great, do it nights and weekends. Maybe if it's good, we'll use it at some point, but go for it. And so I kept developing it. And I ended up uh, chatting with Mike Krieger, who had started Instagram. And Mikey, at the time, Instagram was very small. This was in early 2011. They had sort of just started ramping. Um, and I asked Mikey, like, what happens when Instagram crashes? And he said, oh, you have no idea. I get more crash reports per minute than I can read. <laughs> and that was the light bulb in my head. I was like, oh, OK, we're starting the company. Wow. And so in the meantime, I had met my co-founder, Wayne, at a random startup dinner in Boston, just getting a group of folks together. And Wayne got ex very excited by the idea. And he was more on the uh, marketing and sort of business side of things. And he was like, I'm going to get every app interested. And I, of course, as the technical founder, was a little skeptical. I was like, really, everybody says this. What are you going to do? And he's like, no, no, let me show you. 
Sure enough, three weeks later, he comes back to me with a spreadsheet of 30 apps. He's talked with their mobile lead, gotten their feedback on the idea and their commitment to use a beta version. And this wasn't some random app you hadn't heard of. This was VP of mobile, the weather channel. And so I was like, okay, maybe we should work together. Um, and so that was it. We ended up deciding uh, that spring of 2011, we'll start the company. I gave notice at Box and we went out to raise money and get going. So what ended up being the business model of Crashlytics? So Crashlytics was SaaS. So developers would download our SDK. They would put it in their app, ship it to the app store, and then they would pay us monthly. Funnily enough, we actually stayed in beta for quite a while, grew to hundreds of millions of devices, tens of thousands of apps, and so had only just started charging when we were acquired by Twitter. Um, and so we were acquired by Twitter 14 months after starting the company. It was extremely fast in early 2013. And as part of that process, they agreed to make Crashlytics free. And so we ended up actually having to refund everybody who had paid for it in order to get out of the contracts and just make it free. Wow. So how much, how much capital did you guys raise in, in total for Crashlytics? We were very capital efficient. So we started with a one mil seed round, and then we raised a five mil A a year later. Uh, but of the six, we only ever spent three. And so actually as part of the Twitter deal, we never revealed to them how much cash we had on the balance sheet. And we were able to redistribute that cash back to shareholders outside of the deal. Wow, that's amazing. So, so then in this case, what was that process like? I mean, how did the whole acquisition of Twitter come about? Because at this point in the game, you guys were very early. Probably you were looking at doing your next round, you know, really ramping up. So, so how did this process, you know, come about? Yeah, it was very unexpected. Uh, we Crashlytics was going gangbusters. We were ramping up to start raising a B round. Uh, I think we had crossed 300 million devices that the code was on. And we got a call out of the blue uh, from Twitter's corporate development lead, who was Jess Farilli. And she just asked us on the phone, hey, have you ever considered working for Twitter? And we were like, no, why would we do that? <laughs> and so <laughs> the call didn't go all that well. Um, and we were like, what are you thinking? And we we're like, I don't know if this is serious or not. Why would we join you? Like, can we throw out a number? And she threw out a number that was not interesting. And we were just like, thank you. Appreciate the interest. Like, we're going to keep building this company. And so that was that. Three months later, she called back and she was like, no, we're serious. Like, would you actually consider working for Twitter? And we're like, I, I don't know. Um, and she was like, okay, at the very least, come out and meet the executive team. And then she was like, oh, and we'll pay for your flights. And so Wayne and I were like, fine. Okay. So we ended up, this was uh, fall of 2012. We ended up throwing a Christmas party, a holiday party for our team, giving them the next week off. And Wayne and I silently disappeared to San Francisco so that we could meet Twitter without anyone knowing. Um, and uh, we were shocked, honestly, by their level of sophistication, understanding of the mobile ecosystem, strategy they had for their mobile developer platform, and spent time both with Dick Costello, who was CEO at the time, and with Jack Dorsey. And they had this vision for Twitter becoming this huge force in mobile development, in them building a huge new Twitter mobile API and all sorts of stuff. And that got us very excited because they were willing to make Crashlytics sort of the bedrock piece of that and make our product free and keep investing in it. Um, and so after a very intense week of negotiating, 
we actually signed the term sheet at 10 a.m. Christmas morning after being up with them till 2 a.m. Christmas Eve negotiating the deal. So it's interesting here because, you know, typically people will talk about partnerships and, and things like that that would eventually lead to an acquisition. But, but it's, a, it's one of the most unique, you know, uh, ways to, to trigger an acquisition by telling someone, hey, why don't you come and work for us? I mean, at right. what point? At what point did it did it cross your mind that it was not really an employment or recruiting type of thing? It was more of an acquisition process. What you were getting into? It it became clear pretty quickly because a partnership wouldn't have really made sense. We couldn't have achieved Twitter's goals with having their own Twitter SDK and all sorts of stuff through a partnership. And so it, it was pretty blunt. Um, I would say, in my view, there's sort of three types of acquisitions. Uh, there's just pure aqua hires, which was sort of in Creo's acquisition by Box was very much that, um, though they did get the tech as well. There's sort of a business acquisition where you want to buy a company for their revenue, for their product, whatever it might be. And then I would bucket this more in the third camp of what I call a strategic acquisition is they, yes, they were interested in Crashlytics, but not for what it was today and not the current revenue or anything like that. They were strategically interested in what it could unlock for Twitter. And Twitter at the time had a very strong corporate development pro uh, program led by Jess, and they were very strategic. So we went out and bought Periscope way early pre-launch. Um, they bought Mopub, the ads platform. And so Crashlytics ended up being one of their pretty landmark acquisitions. Nice. And it was actually reported and leaked that the acquisition was over 100 million. So, so what a good outcome. Good stuff. So Jeff, in this case, you go and you join Twitter. What was the experience, you know, because at the end of the day is, is, is learning from others is critical. And I'm sure that being able to, to, to have those interactions with someone of the caliber of Jack Dorsey allowed you to really understand, you know, what, what it looks like and, 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 and how these incredible high performance individuals, you know, how they operate. So, so what did you learn from, from, from interacting with someone like Jack Dorsey? Yeah, it was a really fascinating experience. And to put it in context, obviously, way early in my career, I had thought Apple was too big. Then we joined Box when they're 40. I saw Box scale to 400 in two years, so sort of hyper growth period at Box. When we joined Twitter, I believe they were around 1,500. And so far smaller than they were today. It was very intimate, particularly among the leadership team. They were always in meetings, giving input, trying to give product advice, all sorts of stuff. Twitter had an overabundance of ideas. Everyone and their mother had an idea for what Twitter should be, could be, would be with just one more feature. And it was a real challenge in focus at the company in deciding what Twitter had to be and sort of shaping that. And so I think that was a lot of the interaction with the executive team of really plotting out the strategy, aligning on what we wanted to do on the mobile developer side, how we wanted to take it to market, how we wanted to interact with developers, and one of the most uh, special experiences was when we got there, we reincarnated Twitter's developer conference. And so we ran a conference for two years called Flight. I gave the keynote uh, at Bill Graham Civic Auditorium in front of 2,000 developers. And it was a really fun uh, sort of momentum building time at Twitter. Um, and this was all in the run up to the IPO and right after the IPO. And so it was just a super energized period at the company. Obviously, a few years in, Twitter had started having some challenges, the stock flatlined, growth flatlined, um, and so they had to pull back on a bunch of stuff. 
Uh, but in the early days, it was just a fantastic company to see. And Crashlytics, I mean, it ended up being acquired by Google and 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 quite a, a lot of momentum and traction and, 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 and being in many devices. How many devices? Yeah, so today Crashlytics runs on 5 billion MAU. Um, so it's on effectively every smartphone on earth. And that was a crazy process as well. So Twitter, as it started struggling, realized it couldn't afford to build and maintain this large developer platform, but it was way too widely used to shut down. And so we ended up negotiating and sort of there was a bidding war going with a bunch of the other major internet companies to buy Crashlytics and this greater sort of suite of fabric developer tools. And Google ended up winning. The entire team moved over to Google in 2017. And that's what allowed me to finally step back and focus on something new. I had now been doing crash reporting for six years, and it was time for a little bit of a breather. And when you did that step back, it was time to have another brainstorming with Wayne, and obviously your co-founder from, from, from Crashlytics. And that brainstorming led to digits. So, so tell us about that incubation and, and bringing digits to life. It did indeed come right from Crashlytics. So Wayne and I knew we wanted to start something again. Uh, we did take a small break to travel for a little bit, but we knew we wanted to start something again. And what we love is applying sort of consumer grade design, really high design sensibility to complex business problems. And so as we started thinking, we, we literally, our, our brainstorm session was, okay, imagine we start a company today. What sucks? And how can we go fix that? And there were actually quite a lot of parallels because back when we started Crashlytics in 2011, payroll sucked. It was so frustrating to call ADP every two weeks and fiddle with them, and it was just tedious. And of course, Gusto has come along and built a great business. Accepting money sucked. We had to deal with Authorize.net and PayPal and merchant accounts and all this stuff. And now Stripe has made that drop dead simple. And so as we were talking through these examples, we realized wait a second. Whatever happened to accounting, right? Like it really sucked back in 2011 and it still sucks today. And the challenge is when you as an entrepreneur go and start a company, you have no choice but to go hire an accountant or bookkeeper, right? You're going to have to file taxes. And so you hire them in the US, they almost certainly will set up QuickBooks for you. QuickBooks has 80% US market share. And from that moment, you as the business owner, basically lose all visibility into your company, right? Any question I have, I have to go ask my accountant. They have 20 other clients. They're busy. They work for you a day and a half a month. And so their answer is always the same. It's like, oh, give me a few days to update your books and I'll get back to you. And so sure enough, a week later, four days later, whatever it might be, they follow back and reply to your email with an Excel sheet or a PDF report and hope that that answered your question. And in our experience with Crashlytics, like the business is moving in real time. I don't want to wait a week for a black and white PDF that now answers a question that I've since forgotten about, right? I need to make decisions in the moment. And so as we started talking through this, we just became more and more obsessed with this problem and the parallels to the, the product side. Like when you're building a product, you have Google Analytics, you have A-B testing tools, you have real-time performance monitoring like Crashlytics. Those are all live dashboards. Why is my finance a PDF report weeks later? That's incredible. So then, so then 
how did you monet how do you guys monetize how did you guys end up with a business model where you guys were actually extracting value from from really bringing this to life yeah great question so the first thing is it turned out to be way harder to build than it sounds so we started digits in early 2018 uh, we ended up raising a 10 mil a round from benchmark to tackle this problem and we have spent the past three years building. Wow. Um, and it turns out that actually reconciling your finance data in real time is an immensely challenging problem. And you need to get it right. Because if you make big mistakes, the numbers are one, wrong, which is embarrassing, but also not useful. Right. And so we have spent basically three years in heads down R&D. We've been doing a ton of true machine learning, deep learning in production with large trained models. And we're now actually able to bring in companies' finance data straight from their banks, from their credit cards, from their payroll providers, and book it for them into their books, into a live dashboard so that they can understand their business as it happens. And so we just launched a couple weeks back. Uh, we could not be more excited to be out there. And to answer your question, Digits is uh, SaaS. So it's free to start. Um, in fact, you can use it for free forever, and then you upgrade for a bunch of paid features that make it even more powerful. So at this point, obviously, when you were when you're going with digits, I'm sure that the fundraising was a little bit easier because having done a few startups, and especially having had a, a really good outcome on the last one, I'm sure that investors were kind of like throwing money at you. In fact, your Series A was something completely unexpected. So, so why was it like out of the blue for you guys? Something that you did not expect that would happen. Yeah, it was. We were sort of overwhelmed by the change because you're right. Normally, as a founder, you're used to fundraising being a slog. You have to convince people. It's lots of meetings and follow ups and data and everything. And when we started sharing what we wanted to build, the, we were just inundated with investor interest. And so we had set out to raise a $3 million A round. We thought that would be enough to get a prototype out the door. And within a week, we probably had that overcommitted five to 10 times. Um, with firms interested. Then we ended up meeting with Benchmark. And I caught up with Peter Fenton. Um, he had been, of course, on the board at Twitter. I had known him for a while. And I shared what we were working on more as an FYI, because I was like, Benchmark doesn't do many seed rounds. I just want to give him a heads up. And Peter heard the story and was like, so help me understand, why would you raise 3 million today and then get diluted again for an A round, maybe in a year, if you could just raise the A round today. And I was like, uh, is that something you'd be interested in discussing? <laughs> and he was like, yes, I think I would give me a few hours. And literally that night, we get a text from him saying, can we pitch the full partnership at 9am tomorrow morning? Wow. And so we, of course, had no deck, we had no time to prepare, we came in and met with Benchmark's partnership on a Friday morning. And by the end of that day, they had given us a term sheet for a $10 million A round. That's incredible. And so that was remarkable. Um, and of course, was disappointing to all the other firms who had been excited to participate in our seed round, uh, but was really important in retrospect because it gave us the runway we needed to now go and build this product. And how, how, do, you, how do you navigate those discussions with the other firms so that you don't create any enemies? You don't burn bridges? It, it was very awkward, and we hate to be the bearer of bad news. Uh, we also definitely learned that investors are often more used to saying no themselves than being told no. Right. Yeah. And so we, I won't 
name any names, but there were definitely those who took it less well than the others. And it just doesn't reflect like it, it, we have to make the best decision we can for the company. I would love to work with these people. They're all great investors, but it's just it's not possible. And so we had to have some pretty awkward phone calls where we let them know that the seed round wasn't happening and they would not be able to invest. And as a fun fact is that you've gone through at least six rounds of financing and you've never used a pitch stick. How is that possible? Yes. And this, I think it was the accident the first time because we raised that 500K for Encreo without meaning to on just our demo. And that went so well. I've used that technique the whole time. So in, across six venture rounds, across three companies, I have never made a slide deck. And uh, we often also don't show demos in the early stages. And the reason to me is you have to think about fundraising as a psychological process. You are, you are trying to get someone to see the world as you see it and believe that you have the ability and the team to go make that world a reality. And when you use a deck, you're stuck in this very formulaic pitch that, yes, you might have practiced a lot, but it doesn't leave room to customize it to the actual investor you're talking to. And so what I've found the most effective is to start with a very short problem statement, like what problem are we trying to solve and why are we the people to solve it and have the team to solve it? And then let them ask questions. And this guides the conversation far more on what they want, what they want to know. And they don't have to sit there being bored, tuned out, seeing these slides that they don't care about. Obviously, your responsibility as the founder is you need to know your pitch drop dead cold. You need to know every single figure by heart, every single number, because you have no deck in front of you, right? You just have to be able to talk about it. Um, but I have found that to be way more effective because you build the relationship with the investor and they, you can sort of control the narrative better and customize it for what they want to hear. That's amazing. You know, I always say that the fundraising is not about talking. It's about listening. Now, you're not listening for looking good or for giving the right answer. You're listening for identifying the concern that is in between you and the money, because that's really at the end of the day what it, what it comes down to. So I, I love that, that you just share that. So in your, in your case, and now with Digits, if you were to sleep tonight, Jeff, and you wake up in a world five years later where the vision of Digits is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yes, fantastic question. Uh, wake up five years from now and you should have a live finance dashboard and basically a proactive uh, model, a brain of your business running for you 24 seven. And so it will know when you can't make payroll. It will know when a customer has not paid you when they usually do. It will know when your travel spend spikes because this sales team did something that you weren't aware of. And it'll draw your attention to what matters and give you, as the business owner, the peace of mind to know that someone is watching out for your company. And this is really important to me. I believe that as a founder, you have one job. And that job is to fire yourself from every other role in the company. And so as you grow your business, you need to bring in your head of marketing and your engineers and so on. And you're constantly firing yourself from roles so that you can focus on the future. Up until now, there hasn't been any way for the founder to fire themselves from stressing about the financial health of the business. And in five years, digits will make that possible. I love it. So imagine now that I'm putting you into a time machine and I'm bringing you back to that point where you're able to have a chat with your younger self, that younger Jeff that is still in college and uh, thinking about maybe starting a company. So imagine you're able to tell your younger self one piece of business advice 
before launching a business? What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yes. So two crisp things for you. Uh, the first I would say is balance your co-founding team. So the big mistake I made with Increo was we started the company with myself and my friends from the computer science department. That was great. We could build the product, but none of us had any knowledge of marketing, any knowledge of sales, any knowledge of any other part of the company. And more importantly, we didn't have the interest in it either. Everyone just wanted to code more. And so that was a huge liability that is probably one of the reasons we couldn't get enough users to raise the next round of funding. The other, I would say, is distribution is king. It is absolutely everything. And that was probably the biggest thing I did differently at Crashlytics is we spent only about two and a half months building the core Crashlytics product. We spent nine months designing and building the onboarding flow. And we realized that if we could make Crashlytics go viral and spread through word of mouth instantly during the onboarding process, it would grow a lot faster. And from now on, that's all I think about is, yes, the product's nice, but how do you get distribution? How do you make it go viral? How do you get the word out? If you solve that, then you have an actual company. That's absolutely right. You know, there's a lot of people that talk about build it and they will come. You know, I, I, I like more they sell it and then figure it out, you know, how the hell you deliver. So, uh, so good stuff. Now, for the people that are listening, you know, I think that they're probably going to enjoy, you know, if I ask you what has been a book that you wish you would have read, you know, sooner. Oh, man, the most transformative book I read was Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's a very old book, uh, I think a very popular book, but I should have read it even earlier in my life, uh, especially coming from a computer science techie background. It was just completely eye opening in how the world of negotiation works and everything. So if you have not read it, 100% go read that book. Well, that's a great one. I love how he positions how to elevate others to really capture their, yes. the attention. So that's that's a really good one. So, so Jeff, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Please ping me on Twitter. Uh, I'm very active on Twitter, given all my experience working at Twitter. And so I am Jeff Seibert on Twitter, and I'll see you there. Also, my DMs are open. Amazing. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Fantastic. Well, Alejandro, thank you so much for having me. This was a ton of fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.